Okay, we're ready. So if you, uh, if you look in your bulletin, you see that Austin Hammonds was scheduled to preach tonight to bring this section, but with events in their lives kind of overwhelming them, uh, I got asked to do this. And so, and so oddly enough, I'm scheduled to do the last section next week. So you get me two weeks in a row. And I, I don't know if that's a cause for sorrow or joy. I don't know. We'll find out, I guess. So uh, we're in the Sermon on the Mount here, and, and the thing with sermons is you do, you do want to end on a good upbeat, you know, encouraging and joyfulness and all that, but Jesus goes against all convention, at least modern convention, and he ends his sermon on a frightening, heavy, somber note that just hangs in the air. And so we're in Matthew chapter 7, uh, starting at verse 21, and I'll read, I'll read uh, the next couple paragraphs here. This is the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 7, 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain fell and the floods came. The winds blew and beat on the house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house. And it fell. And great was the fall of it. Let's pray. Dear Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have not left us as spiritual orphans. But you've given us your word. You've given us your spirit. You've given us your gospel. Thank you that you've given us everything that we need for a life of holiness and godliness and peace before you. And Father, now as we look at this passage, a heavy passage, a somber passage, a passage that I hope will make each one of us examine ourselves to see if we are really in you or not, may you open each of our hearts and our minds and our souls to it, because it is your word. And it will happen. In Jesus' name, amen. So uh, these last two passages, uh, 21 to 23 and then 24 to 27, are really tied together. And so in our passage tonight, verses 21 to 23, Jesus is warning those who profess him yet really don't believe. And then in the last paragraph, 24 to 27, he's warning those who hear and yet don't do. And both of these have in common the specter of eternal judgment before them. I want to read you something. Listen to this, okay? Put on your theological antenna. Analyze what I'm about to say theologically and see if you agree with it or not. We look to Jesus Christ as our Lord and worship him as our Savior. We believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and creator of the world. We believe that Jesus was born as an infant in Bethlehem. 
As a child of God, the father, and mortal mother, Mary, he grew up learning his divine mission and his father's gospel, line upon line, precept upon precept. We believe that Jesus Christ lived a perfect mortal life uh, to set the ultimate example for us to follow. He became the Messiah, the promised Savior of God's people, whose coming prophets had long foretold. The scriptures record that he taught his gospel through word and deed as he walked the roads of Palestine, healing the sick, causing the blind to see, and raising the dead. We also believe that through his atonement, Jesus Christ suffered beyond description in Gethsemane and on the cross for the sins of all mankind so that he could aid us perfectly in our afflictions. We believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross and rose again so that all humankind could be resurrected and one day return to live with a loving Heavenly Father. As the only person who has ever lived a completely sinless life, the Savior was a perfect sacrifice, a lamb without blemish. What do you think? Good? So-so? Uh-uh? That's a pretty good statement, you know? I, I, you know, I might quibble with maybe one or two things in there, minor things, but overall, I agree with what this says. Where'd I get it from? The Southern Baptist Convention website? No. The statement uh, that I just read came from the official website of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, the Mormons. That's what they say they believe. When uh, we worked with Campus Crusade for Christ, we, we lived in Boise, Idaho, which is 30% Mormon, and uh, we would spend quite a bit of time in Salt Lake City on campuses there that are like 90% Mormon. I've talked to a lot of Mormons about the gospel. I've talked to just everyday Mormons. I've talked to Mormons who are on their mission trip. I've talked to Mormons who have been on their mission trips. I've talked to Mormons who are getting ready to go on their mission trip. I've talked to Mormon bishops about the gospel. And for the most part, they are pleasant people. They're kind people. They're generous people, good-natured, dedicated, dedicated to their families, dedicated to their wives and their husbands. They will call Jesus Lord, Lord. But ultimately, they are lost souls because they believe in a false gospel. And that's what Jesus is getting at in this passage Verse 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. So he says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, is going to enter into the kingdom of heaven. I thought Josh's sermon was really good today, and, uh, and I was, as I was listening to it, I thought, wow, what a great setup for tonight's sermon. Or if I was preaching this morning of this passage, and Zephaniah was tonight, it's like, wow, what a great setup for that. He's right. The day of the Lord, the day of judgment, it's going to be an awesome day for some people. For us who know Christ, it's going to be, man, I can't wait for it to happen. Come, Lord Jesus, would you come? But for those who don't know Christ, it's going to be an awful day, a terrible day. And this is what Jesus is getting at in these last two passages. This is the book of Zephaniah in New Testament terms that Jesus is using here. Throughout this uh, sermon, Jesus is uh, asserting his authority. If you remember from past weeks, 
You've heard it say, da, 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 but I say to you, da, da, da. And now he's asserting his authority again. Jesus is saying that someone's eternal destiny is bound up in him. What you believe about him or don't believe about him is going to determine your eternal destiny. Pretty bold statement for a guy who's just making his first sermon, isn't it? And yet, he is setting himself up as the Son of God because that's who he is. And as a matter of fact, uh, the last couple verses of chapter 7, that, that the people, when he finished these things, they were astonished, for he was teaching them as one who had authority, unlike their scribes and Pharisees and the Sadducees. Many will say to him, Lord, Lord, and we'll hear those beautiful words, well done, my good and faithful servant, enter into the rest of your master. I mean, I can't wait to hear those words. Those who know Christ, it's going to be an awesome day. But he says, not everyone, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, that that's going to be true of. The word Lord here, <clears throat> not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, the word Lord in the Old Testament was a title of God. And it meant that God is master, that God is the ultimate authority, that God is powerful. It's the Lord who created everything. It's the Lord who sustains everything. It's the Lord to whom we submit to. And so when they say, Lord, Lord, they are rightly recognizing Jesus for who he is. He is the Lord. And so, folks, this passage here, this, this 21 to 23, this is not a passage that's directed towards pagans. It's not a passage directed towards um, those who are irreligious or atheists or agnostics. This passage is directly focused on those who are very religious, very devout in what they believe and in what they do. And notice that they just don't call him Lord. They call him Lord, Lord. Doubling the name shows the intensity of their service to him. Showing that I have great zeal for the Lord. Look at me, I'm really doing a lot for him. But Jesus says that calling him Lord, Lord is really no guarantee that you're part of the kingdom of God at all. And that everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, well, who will? but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And so here's a, here's a nice little thing here. This is the awesomeness of it, you know. If you do the will of the Father, you know that you are part of the kingdom of God. Doing the will of the Father is what matters, not what we do for him. Now, in no way is Jesus here talking about a works salvation or anything like that. Okay, he's, not, he's not saying, well, if you do enough good works, then God will look favorably on me and I'll merit his grace and salvation. No one who believes that, even those who call him Lord, Lord, will ever enter into the kingdom of heaven. And so the question is, well, what's the will of the Father? What is Jesus talking about here? Everyone who does the will of my Father who is in heaven, what is the will of the Father? Well, simply put, I think it's believing and receiving the gospel. Why don't you keep your finger here at Matthew 7, we'll come back to it, and uh, turn with me to 1 John, 1 John chapter 3, and we'll look at 
23. Verse 23. 1 John 3, 23. So this is a, a great book of the Bible. Of course, they all are. And here's what John says through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And this is his commandment. What is his commandment? Well, this is his commandment. That we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he has commanded us. What's the command of the Father? This is the universal command that God the Father has for all humanity. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter where we live. It doesn't matter our social status. It doesn't matter anything about us. The command of the Father to the human race is, you believe in my son. That's it. Bottom line. That's the foundational universal commandment for everybody. You believe in my son. Believing in the name of the son of God means that we believe everything the scripture says about him. We believe that he is indeed the second person of the Trinity. We believe that he is the God who became a man, fully God and fully man. We believe in his virgin birth. We believe in his full humanity. We believe that he lived a perfect life. We believe in his atoning death on the cross. We believe and accept and embrace his resurrection, his ascension, his coming again, his lordship over every single area of our lives. That's the, that's the Jesus that scripture presents to us. And so John chapter 3 here essentially tells us, boils down all the commandments for us. There's like 619 commands in the Old Testament, and they all boil down to two, love God and love your neighbor. And John chapter 3 verse 23 says that. You love God. You believe God. You believe in his son. You receive his gospel. You live his gospel. And as we live that gospel, the thing that's going to pop out of our lives automatically is that we are going to love other people as well. I don't love other people in order to be right with God, but because I'm right with God, then I will love other people. Works salvation versus salvation by grace alone. You know, if you look at any false religion, any false religion, they do one of two things. They demean the deity of Christ and they exalt the works of of human people, okay? Every false religion has at its core a works-based salvation, and that's not what Jesus or the Bible presents at all. So take a dedicated Christian. So we're going to have a lineup up here. We're going to have a dedicated Christian, someone who really is a follower of Jesus Christ. We have a devout Mormon. We have a sincere Jehovah's Witness. We have a good Catholic. And then we have just a good guy, you know, no religious affiliation necessarily. He's, he's just a good guy, you know, to be around. If you look at their lives, their lives may be very similar. Um, you know, they're all kind people. They're all generous people. They're all good people. They all love their wives or their husbands. They all try to raise good children. Maybe except for the good guy, they're involved in their church. You know, they're doing things. They're helping orphans, they're adopting orphans, they're helping widows, they go to church, they're involved, they sing, they pray, they do all these things. 
except for the good guy, maybe. All of them are going to call Jesus Lord, Lord. And yet only one of them is doing the will of the Father, and that's the Christian, because he or she believes the gospel of Christ. The Jehovah's Witness believes that Jesus was just a man who became the Son of God because he lived such a perfect life. And that's how we become sons and daughters of God, that we indeed have to live a good and exemplary life, and then God will receive us. Works-based salvation. The Mormon believes that Jesus was the spirit brother of Lucifer, and that one day Jesus and Lucifer came before the Father and offered competing plans of the salvation of humanity. And the Father, just like Jesus, is planned better than Lucifer. And so Jesus became the Messiah instead of Lucifer. And so now they say, look, Book of, uh, Book of Mormon, 2 Nephi somewhere says, we are saved by grace after all that we can do. A works-based salvation. The Catholic believes that uh, believes pretty, I mean, the same that we believe about Jesus. I mean, I, I don't see any differences between what we believe about Christ, between us and the Roman Catholic Church. But they believe that before salvation happens, that your good works merit God's favor so that he will now be obliged to show his grace on you. Again, a works-based salvation. The good guy, he may go to church, he may not, who knows, but you know, the normal thinking out there is, well, you know, my good, my good works outweigh my bad works, and so, you know, the balance is tipped in this favor, and so, hey, I'm in. You know, if there's a heaven, I'm going to go there because I'm a good guy. So every false religion, every false philosophy of salvation apart from the gospel has a works-based salvation, which is a false gospel, which makes that person disobedient to the command of the Father, because they are not believing in Jesus, at least not the Jesus of the Bible. They may be good people, they may do good things, they may, put us, they may even put us to shame with their devout lives. They may call Jesus Lord, Lord, but Jesus says none of that matters. None of that really matters. They are believing in a false Christ or a false gospel. Not everyone, Jesus, let these words sink into your soul not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? On that day, oh, if you were here this morning, your ears should be up right now, you know? On that day. What Josh say 14 times in the book of Zephaniah on that day? And what does it refer to? It refers to the day of the Lord. It refers to, the, to that time frame when Jesus comes back. He judges the whole earth. And you and I and everybody else were standing before Judge Jesus. And we are giving an account of ourselves before him. That's what that day is. It's the day of the Lord has come. Hasn't come yet. But rest assured, folks, it is coming. Everyone, you know, everyone will have one of two reactions when Jesus returns. And I think Josh did a great job with that this morning. That day for his people will be a day of joy 
and rejoicing and gladness and praise and glory and honor because finally sin has been dealt with. Sin in this world, sin in my life, and we're purified and we are going to be with him forever. That day for religious people who have rejected the gospel, that will be a day of unimaginable horror as they stand before Jesus and he says these words to them. Notice very well that, you know, in this conversation here that when they're trying to justify themselves before Christ, that they're not putting their hope in the gospel. There's no mention of the gospel here or what Jesus has done for them. Rather, it's what they have done for Jesus. That's where they're putting their hope. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? Now, folks, I've been a Christian for 40-some-odd years, maybe longer, I don't know. I've been around church a lot. I've pastored two churches, been in this church, been you know, part of the Christian community for all that period of time. And I have never personally prophesied. I've never cast out a demon. I've never done a miracle. I've never done any of those things. I don't know if any of you have. So these are pretty big things that these folks are doing. These are impressive things. Notice that they repeat, Lord, Lord. And notice three times they say, in your name, in your name, in your name. As though they're doing them for Jesus and they have his blessing and his authority to do it. And Jesus says, no, you don't. You don't have those things. What did they do? Prophesying, casting out demons, doing mighty works. Now, at this point, we may think, well, they didn't really do them. They're just making it up. I mean, they said that they do it, but they really didn't do it. They know it's a lie. So it's like uh, some segments uh, within the church. Church meaning the broad church. I mean, it includes everything. There's all these claims that you know, we've cast out demons of people and, and we've done miracles and we see miracle after miracle after miracle happen, you know. But it's just a lie. You know, it's a, it's a lie to maybe make people think that they're connected to God somehow and get people to follow them and give them money, you know, to support their ministry on TV or the radio or whatever, you know, to pay for their jets. We know it's a lie and they know it's a lie. But notice here that Jesus doesn't say that it's a lie. He doesn't refute that they did these things. He doesn't say, oh, you guys are just making it up. He doesn't say that at all. Folks, these things could have really happened. These folks could have really done these things. How is that possible? Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? A prophet prophesies. And prophecy is used in several different ways of Scripture, either by foretelling the future or by revealing things that God has, you know, kept hidden. He reveals them through a person or by uh, proclaiming the truth, like preaching. Israel was on its way to Egypt, and um, there's about a million of them or so, and in order to get to the promised land, they had to go through the land of Moab. And so the king of Moab hears about this, 
And he doesn't want a million or so Israelites coming through his nation. I mean, they could maybe cause an insurrection, dethrone him, eat up all of his food. And so the king goes and he gets this guy named Balaam. Balaam was a pagan prophet, okay? Balaam had, had made his reputation of doing wonders and signs. And he says, Balaam, I want you to come and I want you to stand on this mountain and look over the nation of Israel and I want you to curse them. I'll pay you money. And Balaam said, great, I'll do it. Balaam gets on his donkey. You know the story about the donkey, you know, doesn't go. The donkey talks to him and all this other stuff. And he stands up on the mountain and he opens his mouth and he's getting ready to curse Israel, a pagan. And what happens? The Spirit of God enters that man and he starts to give them a blessing. Three times that happens. And the king is saying, I wasted my money here. But in that, in Balaam's three discourses, he also gives an incredible prophecy about the Messiah who's going to come. A pagan. And yet he's prophesying. God used him for his purposes. If you remember, Paul ran into a young girl in Philippi, and this girl is kind of shadowing him, and she's saying, these are servants of the Most High God. They're going to tell you about Jesus and the gospel. Great truth. The problem is, it came from a demon. This girl was demon-possessed, and Paul casts out the demon. A man could be a great preacher. He can fill stadiums with people, have his own TV show, have his own radio show, write books that millions of people read. He can clearly explain, uh, excl explain the scriptures with gripping sermons. He can give great gospel messages so that people truly do come to know Christ in the thousands. And yet, he may not even know Christ as his Lord and Savior. Not be in Christ. Then we cast out demons in your name. In Acts chapter 17, Paul is in Ephesus, and, uh, and it says there that he is, he is casting out demons, and people are being healed, and all they even have to do is just touch his handkerchief, and they're healed. And so on the heels there come some Jewish exorcists. So they're Jewish exorcists, okay? They've had to have done some exorcisms in order to be called that. They've seen success with that. And these Jewish exorcists come along and they try to exorcise a demon in the name of Jesus. And the demon basically says, well, hey, I know Paul, but who are you guys? And the demon turns on them and beats them up and they have to leave. Lord, Lord, didn't we do many mighty works in your name? Not just mighty works, but many mighty works. Certainly if someone is doing miracles, that has to prove that they belong to Christ, right? Or at least to God, no, no. Moses goes to Pharaoh and he says, let my people go. And Pharaoh says, no. And so what does Moses do? He starts unleashing, through God's power, of course, he starts unleashing the 10 plagues. What's oftentimes missed in that story is that the first three plagues, the Egyptian magicians could do as well. They matched him plague for plague. After the third one, they couldn't do it. But the first three, they could. They were doing mighty works. They were doing mighty miracles. 
One day, Jesus calls his disciples together, and he says, I'm going to send you guys on a mission trip. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you authority to cast out demons. I'm going to give you authority to heal the sick and the afflicted. I'm going to give you the authority to do miracles. And he pairs them up, and he sends them out two by two. And a couple weeks later, they come back, and they're excited because these things happened. They saw them happen. Well, guess what? Who else was part of that? Judas Iscariot was in there. Judas was able to cast out demons. He was able to heal the sick. He was able to do miracles as well. And yet he was far, far, far from God. Folks, don't think that these are just Bible things that don't happen today. I'm convinced that some of the things that people claim are actually happening But it's not because they're from God, it's because they're from Satan, or that God is just allowing them to do it in order to test people. Why don't you turn to uh, Matthew 24, 24. This is a a good thing for us to just remember. Matthew 24, 24. In Matthew 24, Jesus is talking about his coming again the conditions of the world that are going to be there before he comes again. And Matthew 24, 24 says this, For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. The closer and closer that Jesus comes to getting back, we are going to see these things. We are going to see these things that these false prophets in Matthew 7, said that they did. We're going to see them. And yet we need to be discerning, and it doesn't mean that they are from Christ at all. Now, probably in our circles, hardly anyone would say, oh, well, you know, I've done miracles or cast out demons or something like that. Rather, in our circles, it's this, Lord, Lord, didn't I go to church every Sunday? Lord, Lord, did I not pray an hour a day? Did I not read my Bible? Did I give my time and money to the church? Did I go on mission trips? Did I go door to door in my neighborhood knocking on doors to tell others about Christ? Did I serve on church committees? Did I help the helpless and take care of widows and orphans? Did I raise good kids? Lord, Lord, was I not a pastor? Was I not a missionary? Was I not an elder, a preacher? Lord, Lord, did I not suffer for your name? Get ridicule for your name? Lord, Lord, wasn't I executed for your name? Religious activities, no matter how good they are, are no substitute for the gospel of Jesus Christ. None of them are. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Folks, I cannot imagine. I cannot imagine more somber and heavy and frightening words than these. The God of the universe, the God who created you and me, 
The God who has all power in his hands is saying, depart from me. Get away from me. I just don't want to see you anymore. What a frightening thing that must be, and it will be for many. I think that's what Josh was bringing out in Zephaniah this morning. Do you remember? He said, on that day, Zephaniah says, on that day, the mighty men will weep and wail. The ones who thought they were so strong, so religious, so honorable, they're going to weep and wail as they hear these words from King Jesus. I never knew you. Of course Jesus knows them. I mean, he knows their name. The knowing here is in the sense of intimate relationship. It's not of identity, but of relationship. Nahum 1.7, another minor prophet. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. One day Jesus was teaching about him being the shepherd and us being the sheep. And in John 10, 14, he says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me, just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. These folks that Jesus is talking about claim to be sheep, but they're nothing more than wolves. They claim to know Christ, but he doesn't know them. They claim to be Christ's followers and disciples, but they are far from him. Jesus does not recognize them for who they say that they are. And for that, they are eternally condemned. I never knew you, he says. There is not one second of your existence that I ever knew you as my disciple, as my child. Never, not once. No matter what you did or claim that you did, even in my name, I never knew you. You weren't doing it for me. I never knew you, he says, depart from me. They thought that they were blessed of God. They did all this stuff, stuff that, you know, we would be amazed about some. But in truth, they are cursed by him. This is the final judgment. This is the day of the Lord. And the full horror of that day is now falling on them. They thought they were going to be in heaven. They thought that they were going to reign with Christ. And yet, their eternal end is that they're in hell, that place of utter darkness where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched forever and ever 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 without end. I never knew you. Depart from me, you Workers of lawlessness, he says here. They thought that they were doing God's will, but they weren't. The word lawlessness simply means they were breaking God's law. They did not believe the gospel. They did not obey his command. They believed something false. And God says, you are a worker of lawlessness. They may have good theology. They may know the Bible through and through. But in the end, everything they did was sinful and rebellious, and they are eternally condemned for that. They proclaimed to all that Jesus was their Lord, Lord, but in fact, they continuously denied him with their lives and their thoughts and their attitudes and everything else. This passage is heavy, folks. This passage is frightening. To me, this is one of the most frightening passages in all Scripture. 
And as I've prepared for this, I've even examined myself of saying, is it a false Lord, Lord that I'm saying? I, I don't think so. I don't think so. But I don't know about you. I, I don't know everyone here. I mean, I know your names, but you know, I, I can't see into your hearts. I, I don't have, my, you know, my glasses here, they don't have a special Holy Spirit filter that can see if the Holy Spirit is residing in you or not. I don't know. I don't know. All I can say is this, if you think you've done enough good things in this life to merit God's favor, think again. You do not. You cannot. You will not. You never will. Even if you could live a hundred billion million years, you cannot do enough good things to merit God's favor. You don't belong to Christ. And the horrible things that Jesus says here in this passage will come on you unless you repent. So the solution, folks, is believing the gospel, the simple gospel of Christ. Maybe you've heard it a thousand times like I did growing up. And then one day, God opened my heart through a simple gospel presentation, which I'm going to give you now. God is holy and you're not. And there's nothing that you can do about it. And you are eternally condemned by him. And God, out of his grace and his mercy, sent his son, Jesus Christ, to live a perfect life and to die for your sins. He died the death that you deserve so that you can live. And now he demands, he calls you to believe in Christ, to give up your self-effort, to give up your self-righteousness, to give up yourself, and to devote yourself to him. And he will love you, and he will allow you to follow him, and you will enjoy the fruits of eternal life. Have you done that? I hope so. I certainly do. The gospel is no small thing, folks. It is no small thing at all. Knowing, believing, understanding, embracing the gospel is God's kindness to you. And for those of us who do know him, oh, rejoice in that. The moment that he opened your dark heart to the truth of the gospel and to the truth of Christ, you were changed forever into a son and to a daughter of God so that this awful passage, this heavy, weighty passage will not be in your future, but something else grand and glorious. And as Josh brought out so wonderfully this morning, God will sing over you because of the salvation that he has brought in you. And folks, for our part, no matter how tough life is, no matter how bad it may be, the fact that you are a son or a child of God or a daughter of God always, always, always will give you an occasion to give him praise and glory and thanks. So let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for this passage. We thank you that uh, your son gave this sermon. And we thank you, Father, that uh, again, you have not left us alone, but that your word and your spirit are working in each of us. And I don't know, I don't know every heart here, but Father, if there is someone here who does not know you, I pray that today would be the day of salvation for them, and that, they, uh, that you would trouble their hearts until they come to you. For those of us who know you, Father, help us to live for you and for your glory and for your honor. In Jesus' name, amen.